Oh, well, thank you for coming on. Uh, who, am I, who am I talking to? Talking to Matt Mitchell, a Ohio writer and, yeah, avid follower of the Marxist podcast. Well, thank you. And I have to, I have to apologize, too, because um, I'm talking to you on the day the new Frank Ocean single came out. <laughs> I, uh, I, I blocked off an hour or two for this uh, podcast recording, so I can, I'll go back to the Frank Ocean song in a few hours. Yeah, well, thank you for talking. <laughs> yeah, of course. Do you have any first thoughts on the song or no? Um, soon? I'll be honest with you. When I saw that it was out, I thought it was a cover of the Beach Boys song in my room. And I got really excited because, like, that's like a childhood song. And then it wasn't. It's actually, like, a gay as fuck song. And so I'm pretty, pretty I'm still pretty happy about it. I think it's cool. I'm going to, I need to dive into it a little bit more. His new stuff is kind of, like... It's got a it's got a very different vibe than what his last like era was. So I'm still trying to sort of get into it as much. Yeah, he was really minimalist in his last one. Yeah, like he had this he had this weird thing where Blonde was a very like sort of stripped down version of what he was doing on Channel Orange. But then he has like this string of singles right after Blonde that had their own specific sound, and now he's taking a complete different direction. So it's cool. I'm into it. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I can't wait for more Frank Ocean. I I don't want to get myself too excited because he's the ultimate like finesser when it comes to releasing music. Like he's re- he's dropped these last two singles, and now we might not see an album for seven years. So. I have no idea what to expect. He really is someone who kind of reminds me of the Fiona Apple approach to releasing songs. Oh, yeah. But I also just, like, completely appreciate what he's doing because he's on his own, like, calendar. He doesn't care about what anyone else wants. He's just going to do whatever he thinks is the Frank Ocean way of doing it. So, I mean, props to him. As a fan, I'm mad. But as a, like, as someone who does some sort of art, I totally get what he's doing. So... Yeah, yeah, I really liked on his last one how he did the the two albums because he wanted to get out of his record deal. I thought that was hilarious and good. <laughs> yeah, I uh, everyone like I, people who are Frank Ocean fans. They like they have this thing where they're like, I remember where I was when the Endless stream started, and so I was at a Cleveland Indians game when it started, and didn't actually see it live. So I'm kind of bummed. But as an Apple Music user, I have access to it twenty four seven now. So yeah. Well, wait, so that would have been, was that, that would have been close, that was a fall release, right? So that would have been, like, close to the postseason. It was August August of 2016, because he put out Endless, like, the day before Blonde, and, like, that was, like, and I was going, I had just broken up with my girlfriend at the time, so I was, like, perfectly ready for this album, but. Yeah, that's unfortunately good timing. Oh, it's, you know what, I think it was great timing. Like I, uh, I needed it, and I'm, I'm, things were for the better. So, shout out to Frank Ocean for soundtracking my breakup before college. Well, I guess another important question would be: Did Cleveland win or lose that game? You know, I we were playing the Angels, and I think we lost. We had an early lead, and then we blew it, as Cleveland tends to do. But that was the year that we lost to the Cubs in seven games. So that whole season was kind of just a roller coaster of like. Oh man, that game! I being... still think about that game seven. Sorry, sorry to bring it <sighs> up for you, but you know, 
I, uh, I like I, I like to lie and say I'm over it because the Cavs won the title the same year, but I'm not really over it because um, I'm way more of an Indians fan than a Cavs fan, though I like basketball more than baseball, which is like a weird thing. But uh, yeah, I'm still hurting just because uh, it's just so it's such a Cleveland thing to have that happen to us. So can't really can't really complain, I guess, because it's just typical now. Yeah, I mean, I still haven't recovered from when Carlos Beltran struck out looking to Jason Isringhausen in the Game Seven of the against the Cardinals in two thousand six. In two thousand six. So. <laughs> oh man, you know, I uh, like around that time was when I started really getting into like baseball beyond the scope of the Indians because you know, as when you're a fan of like sports, you tend to just like limit yourself to the teams that you root for and you don't care about anyone else. So it was around that time when I was like starting to like get an understanding of everyone else in major league baseball. So I remember that world series, even though I was only like nine years old, but I remember it because I, there's a part of me that like sadly likes the Cardinals as like an, like an NL team. So I feel your pain, but I also was like, yeah, go St. Louis, you know? No, I, I can understand that the Mets are hard to root for. Just got a phone call mid podcast. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. I'm probably going to have some kind of snafu, like an alarm goes off, or I let the bot mm-hmm. stops recording or some nonsense. Oh, of course. It happens. Yeah, we're just going to keep all this in, because, I don't know, This is I'm not going to edit. I, You know, I, I appreciate the rawness. So, that's totally fine. Yeah, but I also just wanted to ask you, too, like, um, about, about football, like, what Randy Moss uh, clips are you watching? Any uh, any touchdown pass, you know, you, you go on YouTube and you just type in like Randy Moss compilation and it's like the most badass thing you've ever watched in your life. So I'm just, you know, sometimes just like to go see him, you know, as they say, Moss, some defenders, because he's just amazing. Always was. Yeah, football is probably my least, least favorite sport, but I will admit it, it probably has the best highlights. I uh, see... All of my friends that I like hang around with most of the time all hate football, so I totally get it. It's probably it's probably the one sport that has the most haters, but also like the biggest fan base, which is it's just weird. Some every person either has like a, a negative or a positive opinion about football. It's never a middle ground. So no, it it does seem that way, but I think it's just like some of that just goes back to how politicized football is. Oh yeah, it. You, I, the way I look at it is you can't watch football in 2019 without like consciously thinking about all the fucked up shit that's also happening in football. Um, so you have to, I, that's what I, that's how I feel with most things in America is you have to be conscious about the negative aspects and the dark, like underbelly of, uh, anything that's like has succumbed to the terror of capitalism. So yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess for those listening wondering like why we're talking so much about sports in your in your poem Ode to Football you write about um the NFL response to I suppose the haters and the and the fake friends. Yeah. Well, there's there's this idea that um it's the football is a savage game. I just wrote an essay about like for a college class about sort of the savagery of football and people really hate to think about like how messed up players are when they leave the league and retire. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind a lot more because there are people who are 
who have CT, and obviously CT is something that you can't really diagnose until that person is dead. And a lot of players are having severe like health problems, and no one seems to care, not even the league. Like They are settling lawsuits, but in reality, they're just sending money to these players just so they won't talk about it anymore. And then you have the whole like Colin Kaepernick problem, which isn't a problem. It's just the NFL is a bun- is just a a market of terrible people who have blackballed Colin Kaepernick severely. He there there are a lot of teams in the league who have terrible starting quarterbacks, including the Denver Broncos, who the Browns are playing tomorrow, and they are starting a quarterback who's never played it down. And Colin Kaepernick is sitting at home, so you can see it. Oh yeah, I'd I'd heard there was a quarterback crisis in the NFL, but that that's pretty comical. Yeah, there are, I think there are maybe a hand, maybe three or four teams right now who are starting quarterbacks that are were that are currently so bad that Colin Kaepernick at his worst is miles better than them. So he could probably just like come off the couch and play better. Oh yeah, I think he's they sometimes on social media there pops up like some videos of him pop up where he's going absolutely hard in workouts as if he still is on a team and I just I I'm praying for a day where he gets to be on like an um, an NFL team again and just kicks the shit out of anyone in his way. Yeah, it's and it sounds like too. It's only like it's only a matter of time before one of these teams like gets that desperate. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. I don't know. It, it really comes down to you know how how liberal is a general manager of a team going to be, and unfortunately, the NFL when it comes to anyone beyond the players on the field, it's such a conservative market. I mean, you have a lot of players on teams that are liberal as hell, and you know they take the knees in support of Kaepernick, and they speak out about injustices. They wear T-shirts that you know, have the victims of police brutality written on the front. But when it comes to the higher ups, like coaching and the general manager and the owners, they are really just the worst. And they have no desire at this point to bring Colin Kaepernick in. And if I'm an owner or I'm a general manager, I can set aside, you know, any beliefs I have and any money if it means we're going to win games. And so, I mean, do you want to lose for three seasons or do you want to have a chance at winning? That's that's all what it should come down to, but I don't know. America's kind of just the worst when it comes to sports and politics, except for basketball. I think basketball has sort of kind of bridged the gap between politics and sports in a nice way, at least better than football. Yeah, basketball and like the WNBA and women's soccer are, are, are pretty good with the sports and the politics, mm-hmm. but with the NFL Definitely. player, with the NFL stuff, I remember I like tweeted about it when it happened, but like I could imagine... Like all the all the angry boomers kneeling as the Jay Z collaborative <laughs> songs play during the NFL games oh now, God. thinking thinking they're somehow owning Kaepernick when the true own is that Jay Z, of course, is essentially scabbing and you know working with the NFL. Yep, that's yeah. Uh, yeah, the boomers. I well, I I hope like personally that the NFL gets better once all the boomers die, but I I still have my reservations because. Half of the NFL's fan base is the same, like in Gen Z and the Millennials is the same has have the same ideals as boomers do. So it it's a toss up. You only you could do is really hope that's that the NFL gets better when it comes to um the way it blackballs players who speak out about social injustices, but 
realistically, I know that it might not get better, but I'm still going to have a little bit of hope because there is there are a few players who have spoken out that still have jobs. Well, I think there is a universe in which um, football did get better, and it's in the uh, John Boy's cinematic universe. <laughs> it is in the John Boy's cinematic universe in the fumble dimension for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how so? How did you come to? I, let's. How did you first come to John Boy's work? So, um, a musician that I used to follow, who will not be named because he turned out to be a, a sexual assaulter, uh, he. To, like he told his fan base about John Boyce's seventeen seven hundred seventy six football. Like I, it's a it's basically a novel, but it's not a novel. It's a it's a it's a internet article that spans the length of a novella about you know the future of football and the future of the world. But I read it because I was like, hell yeah, I, I love sports literature and honestly it's probably one of the top three things i've ever like read in my entire life it's just phenomenal it's very funny it's hilarious but it's also like i like a little bit realistic in my opinion i think you know in two thousand years that could easily be something that happens i mean you never really know i like to i I like to have a futuristic uh outlook on the, the evolution of football and i hope that one day we are forced to suffer and just playing it like in a, a forever game of football where there's not really a winner. Like the central characters are like the sort of uh, space um, exploring satellites that become sentient and like the, mm-hmm. like watching them like, like learn how to, I guess, deal with just being is, you know, like a really interesting thing to explore in fiction and do it through the medium of them watching football games. <laughs> Oh yeah, for sure, and it's just so cleverly written. I like John. Like John Boyce is just he's he's phenomenal because he takes any sport and basically just says fuck you to anybody who is just really into sports for the for the fun of it and like dives into the into numbers and statistics and just what ifs that will never ever actually occur. And it's it's just it's quite lovely for someone who struggles with. Um, just like the surface level uh, mediocrity and like agonizing, like again, politics of what happens in the NFL. And so getting to kind of escape from that and think about like, oh, what would happen if the 2008 Detroit Lions only got to run one play every down? Like that's phenomenal. I, I, I want that to happen. I want one, like one team to run one play every single down. Yeah. And it's interesting too, like, um, because I think one of the things he's doing too is like thinking about how a lot of us, like for instance, I grew up watching baseball. So like a lot of like my memory is just of like becoming who I am are through like baseball. And I feel like that's a, like in that, in that not novella, I guess it, he kind of explores that theme too with the sentient satellites or whatever. Oh yeah. And I try to sort of like in the Ode to Football poem, which has a much longer title in real life that if I can find, I'll read the whole uh original draft title but i just i i wanted to think about the real aspects of football in a in a way that a lot of people aren't writing about football and i don't think there is enough poetry about football right now and if there is it's kind of like oh you know i used to play like high school football and it really like molded me into the person i am today and i just think that's kind of like not realistic anymore because 
it's just such a fraction of people who play high school football that actually continue to play football that that narrative is so Bruce Springsteen at this point that it's like un- unattainable. Yeah, and I think like I talked about this with like Wendy and something like the idea that like pop culture, like just sort of something now is that like it happens to you. Pop culture just kind of happens to you. And I think sports are like one of the, you know, most popular and influential of the pop cultures. So like I mm-hmm. think at times it's just like, you know, I know all this stuff about the NFL and I'm not even really a fan. It just just happens. Yeah, I think so. Um, Hanif Abdurraqib said it says it the best. I, he we were hanging out at one point and he mentioned that he didn't he doesn't follow the NFL anymore, but he had a complete grasp on what was happening with Antonio Brown just because of social media and the way popular culture has evolved into sports being at the forefront of it. And I found found that really interesting because it's true. Like I know so much about soccer and I don't watch soccer ever. And I think that that's sort of it's got its upsides and its downsides i think we're more connected with like things that we have really no interest in and then we can sort of keep conversations going about those said things but then we're also we have to subject ourselves like involuntarily to the things that we really have no interest in so when i have to read about the soccer like whatever whatever's happening in the world cup i'm like i don't want to but man now i know what's happening so i can talk to my soccer loving friends but I really fucking hate soccer. So like it's 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 iffy. I don't know. Whichever way you want to go with that is the way. Yeah, and a lot of the times too like it's interesting like you'll have you'll start to have now like favorite writers who write about like, you know, John Boy sometimes writes about football, you know. I, I you know, I I've learned mm-hmm. never to count out touchdown Tom, but like I not ne- you know, I never <laughs> I never um actually yeah. watch football and but like so like do you have like do you find like writers that you like writing about sports you don't like you know I've, i don't think i've ever pursued um writers writing about soccer in ways that i'm like yeah this is great i do um the closest thing i can think of is in the novel exit west there's a section where like there's a decapitated head and they use it to play soccer and i was like wow you know that's like as, as interested as i'm gonna get in soccer but I tend to, I mean, this is terrible because we're always supposed to, as writers, kind of branch out and find things that we've never really been interested before and learn about new ways to interact with those. But I don't think I've ever sought out a a writer who writes about anything other than, you know, the main sports that I watch, which is like football, basketball, baseball, golf, boxing. Like, those are the five main ones that I find myself invested in, at least enough to where every once in a while I turn on the TV and it's on, and I'm like, okay, I'll watch this for the next couple of hours. Although there is some, there are some good like futuristic novels that I can't think of off the top of my head in terms of what their titles are that are about like tennis, and I find tennis to be really interesting. I know David Foster Wallace writes a lot about, used to write a lot about tennis because he was like <laughs> almost like a professional tennis player at one point, and so that's about as far as I've ever gone with sports that I don't follow on a regular basis. Yeah, I'll just, um, like, I think Eduardo Galliano wrote something about soccer. And another one I've been mm-hmm. wanting to read, like, in that vein, I think CLR James wrote a book about cricket. But, and I've, like, okay. I, have no, I have no knowledge of cricket, so that'd be a funny thing to try and read. <laughs> but, I don't know, it, I just, like, I don't know, for me, it's just, like, an interesting way to try and get into a new sport or whatever. I feel like I'm kind of past my prime on getting into new sports because I, I think it like there was a point in time where we would play 
like soccer in gym class, and I'd be like, oh, "This is kind of fun." And some of my friends play like club soccer, but then I just like couldn't get into it. I think that's like a really terrible thing to say that like I'm past my prime for anything because I'm only like 21. So, but I don't know. I I think I'm so lazy and like taken aback by the world that I just probably I, it will take a lot for me to just pursue other like sports i think i'm so into my own routine that i'm pretty set for the next five to ten years i don't know i feel like i'm ready to get into a new sport and i'm like almost 30 so i think there's hope for you (laughs) okay good i'm glad i hope when i'm 30 i'm like man i really want to like watch professional croquet like (laughs) that's what i want to do that's a good maybe maybe that's gonna be my new sport like just like a bunch of rich white dudes really getting been out of shape about like knocking a pool ball through like a tiny little like square in the grass that's what i'm really into yeah i would love to see some like meltdown clips from from that game like like, <laughs> yeah. like i've seen like bo- have you seen like the bowling meltdown clips where the bowling players like oh yeah oh those are so good i've i've participated in bowling meltdowns and like i i can admit like on the surface that i i am a terrible bowler but when i get down into the lanes i'm like okay I'm about to show everybody up, and then I roll like a, I don't know, like a 65 game score, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? I knew I was bad. So, well, I mean, the trash talking is half the fun. So, oh yeah, I love trying to just like fuck with my friends when they're in their like their wind up, and I like cough really loud in the back, and then they throw a gutter ball. That's that's one of my immense pleasures on this earth. Yeah, I wish. Well, I like my favorite sports, baseball, and I wish that was more accept socially acceptable in professional baseball. But it's not because of all the terrible unwritten rules. Oh yeah, like heckling should be fun in baseball, but then you get to like Boston and they're like throwing racial epithets at like the Baltimore Orioles players. So I don't think we're there yet for heckling in baseball or any sport. Because I mean, in in the NBA, like last year, there was just like this huge span of people getting banned from stadiums because they were like saying racist things to the basketball players on the court so it's like there should be a like a space for really fun and not like degrading heckling and i'm living for that day when i can just like talk trash at people and there and then there's not some guy who swoops in and says something really really terrible and i'm like well shit now it's ruined you know yeah, my fa- like I think probably my favorite and probably the the, the best one going forward is um, like when I go to when you go to minor league games, baseball games especially, someone usually uh, yeah someone in the umps start blowing calls because you know there's like only two umps and <laughs> no who gets a minor league <laughs> yeah. game who cares. But when people really mm-hmm. turn on the umps in those games, that's like so fun and hilarious. It's like barely like one step above like pee wee baseball. Like I have a I used to play pee wee baseball and I have like distinct memories of like coaches getting into it with umpires. Who, and the umpires are like high schoolers, like who volunteered for this, and yeah. and it's like it's like okay, you're kind of yelling at like a minor <laughs> about like random stuff, but then like there used to be times where like people in the stands would get into arguments with other people in the stands, and I've experienced that at minor league games at least five times, and it's sometimes much better than any like atmosphere that you would find at a major league ballpark. Yeah, one of my someone someone I know on Twitter who. Uh... He's one of the co-hosts of the Southpaws podcast. He used to be, like, um, I think, like, a Little League ump, and he'd always tell stories like, yeah, the, the best like the best part of the game is, like, the game itself, but the worst part is the parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really is. Like, they... 
parents of little league players are really the worst. I can't I can't think of a really good way to describe them other than that they are little satans that are running around outside the fence and then they get really they get too into it. I think that happens in like AAU basketball too much too where you have like fathers who never really got to enjoy the the limelight and now they're like like they're they're using their kids as proxies for their own like failed dreams and it's really sad and heartbreaking but also as an outsider super fun to watch go down yeah no totally and i wanted to ask you too like about i guess like parents and stuff because they come up a lot in your in your poems like i'm thinking about the one with guy fieri and because like mm-hmm. a lot of it is like i think mediated at times through like you know pop culture whether it's sports or again guy fieri right so like i guess like how how has like pop culture like influenced i guess like your relationships with other people in that way well uh, starting with like parents i i find myself at this point in my life where most of the majority of my relationship with my father is is set around popular culture specifically sports sometimes movies although he's at this point in his life where he just kind of like lays on the couch like 24 7 and watches mash reruns so, and I'm not a fan of MASH like he is. Like, I could watch, like, an episode, maybe, but that's just depending on how I'm feeling. But um, we it, it revolves around sports, but it's also, he's one of those pe- one of those guys, because I don't think women do this nearly as much as dudes do, about where he will yell at the television set whenever something goes wrong because he thinks that the players on the field can hear him through the television broadcast. And... I've oh, got yeah, I love that. <laughs> it's the most American dad thing that has ever happened, I think, other than like New Balance shoes. And he and he's gotten to this point where he's just so angry all the time when he watches sports that I can't even watch sports with him. So when I go home to visit my parents, I kind of am just in my room because like the Browns will be playing and he'll be like, let's watch the Browns game. And I'm like, no, I kind of just want to lay in my bed, like under my blankets and watch without saying a word, just like some really like obvious facial expressions of my either disdain or happiness but it's usually disdain because i'm a browns fan and but i mean i was raised like my family is a pop culture family we i was raised on specific decades and genres of music and i was raised from a young age to enjoy things like comic books and movies and television and you know and the celebrity of it all i think that's when you live in rural ohio you don't have a lot of like nightlife to go out to because you know you live on a highway that has of a town that has one general store and no real place to go to hang out unless you want to go to like your friend's basement and and vape so like i like growing up you know we would sit outside around the fire pit and listen to like disco music so i i i try to have real meaningful like interactions with people when it comes to friendships on like a level that's not rooted in like, Hey, did you catch like season 32 of Saturday Night Live? But it's more, I have, I, I try to find connections through popular culture with people because if I know like what your taste in, in like what's going on in the world, what that is, I might have a, a really easy or a really difficult time, you know, building bonds. And that's a really, like uh, materialistic way to go about connections, but it's just how I was raised. And that's how I tend to approach my writing is trying to deal with real world problems that I'm going through 
through the lens of the things I'm listening to and watching. Yeah, and I really feel like with with football, it really is like the angry sport. I feel like, mm-hmm. uh, especially because like with all the other sports, maybe soccer is an exception because it is kind of a weekly sport. But with all the other sports, they just happen too frequently to be mad at them all the time. Like you couldn't <laughs> like imagine being as mad as football fans are about baseball every single day, basically. Yeah, I think That'd that's be... give. Yeah, I think that's given my father some like great freedom because he's at he's at the point where he doesn't even watch the Indians games anymore because I mean there's 162 of them and if he was angry for 80 of them he would die he would have a heart attack he would not make it 16 game schedules is about all we can handle in the in the Mitchell household at this point yeah I mean the the Nationals manager probably almost had a heart attack this postseason so <laughs> yeah but I mean he gets rewarded with a really gorgeous diamond ring now so I think I, I feel like he's going to be okay for a little while. Even if the Nationals come out and are absolutely like the worst team in the league next year, he's going to be doing pretty well for about five years or so. Yeah, and they might be because Scherzer's arm locked up and they, they don't have Scherzer. Yeah. They're, really, they're really in trouble. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, although I have been getting a kick out of like the Bryce Harper memes that have come out. Oh, those are it. so good. I, especially because like, I hate Bryce Harper so much. Oh, yeah. He's the he's probably the most overrated baseball player right now, and he's oh, he's sure. he's making so much money to bat two hundred every year. And of course, it's the best that he's doing it in Philadelphia. Oh yeah, that's that makes it even better. And I, I'm like you know being a Clevelander in many ways, I've grown to hate a certain town in Pennsylvania more than any other place in America. But I also really hate Philadelphia. I've been to Philadelphia, and it's kind of worse than anyone makes it seem, except for people who live in Philadelphia. Yeah, I, I, again, I'm from the New York media market, so we could go on and on about how Philly sucks. And, you know, <laughs> that could be a whole podcast, <laughs> frankly. But I do want to ask yeah, you, you know, about... I... Oh, no, no, go on. No, go, no, go ahead. No, for real, what do you, you were, you were going to trash Philly. I don't want to stop you. I, uh, I, so I think Philly is okay when it comes to sports teams. I think that they do their best. They try. Like, the Eagles had a chance. They really did. They had a chance to really ha- build a dynasty, and they kind of blew it after their Super Bowl win. And the Phillies, just, I hate the Phillies, but, yeah. Oh, I mean, same. <laughs> but um, yeah. I didn't want to ask you about, like, growing up in, in like, was it northeastern Ohio? Like, because you mentioned mm-hmm. how, like, how rural it is and not like there's you know i grew up in a town like that too there's like nothing to do essentially you you just like go to a friend's basement and, and play video games so like did yeah. you so is that like how you so like how'd you come to poetry i guess in that in that context um well i, I think that a lot of people unknowingly at least in my town come are exposed to poetry a lot through hip-hop um but i really wasn't familiar with how cool modern poetry is until college um when dan campbell who is the lead singer of the wonder years was like reading hanif abdurakib's book and i was like well you know if my favorite singer likes this book i should check it out and then i was like just blown away and that you know parlayed into me looking for other new poets to just indulge in and it's a world out there that i had no idea about six years ago and now I'm in it. So it's like, it's really cool. But it's hard to get into poetry in a rural area, especially when in rural school districts, like the arts are not emphasized enough. So 
everyone's taught to look at writing and poetry as like this terrible thing that you are forced to do in English classes and like you're taught to go get a trade like trade job go to trade school like don't go to college for art go to college for marketing start a business so I yeah, like, I, uh, yeah. no I was gonna say like way more goes into sports in those areas than any kind of art yeah, I'm teaching it like I'm teaching, helping teach a class about like where we come from in terms of identity. And there's a lot of athletes in the class, and but they they come from you know more urban areas. And they we read some of Friday Night Lights, and you know the opening chapter of Friday Night Lights is the most intense like thing you could read because it's on and on about like the diehard support that this town has for a high school football team and they're a lot of the athletes were just that who are from like suburbs of cleveland are just were blown away about like how can some how can somebody love a team so much that they have no stake in and it's it's kind of like a question you ask about professional sports too but i think that there is something kind of romantic about really like loving the sports teams from the town you come from, especially if it's a high school sport team. But yeah, sports is way too important in like <laughs> Northeast Ohio because nothing good happens here usually when it comes to sports. Yeah, I think that's going to like looking back on it, that's something that's like really hard to explain to people who didn't grow up in that context, like how important some like local high school sport is to just like every adult in the in the town. Like, it, it's just, like, completely inexplicable unless you grew up there, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Like, like my, my hometown, Southington, Ohio, they are still kind of mourning the 1978 high school basketball playoffs because we had, they say we had, like, the best team in the state, but our star player got the flu the night before the regionals game. So it's, like, a huge what-if, and no, no one's over it. If they were alive for it, they are still heartbroken. <laughs> oh my god yeah that yeah. reminds me of um in my high school one i i don't want i can't i can't say the sport because it'll narrow it down a lot but uh basically one year the, the 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 popular team ended up doing um breaking the sort of high school rules regarding how many games they could play and they got disqualified from the state championship and, <laughs> oh, and, oh man and that people are still so that was like literally 10 years ago like 15 and people are still so mad at so mad at the coach i don't even think the coach can live in that town anymore <laughs> yeah is it like i don't know it's it's like a mob people they do not give up on it and like but it's weird because they will stick but the nice thing about it which i think is the romantic aspect about it is is that they tend to stick with you like still stick with teams through thick and thin which is kind of a really interesting thing like they'll talk shit on how bad the high school team is doing but they're, they're st- their asses are still in the seats on friday oh yeah they're so. always they're always in the <laughs> like, stands. yeah like you know like when when my like my my class was in high school we had a really good team and then at one like our like my junior year they had a really terrible year which was a shot was like a shocker because we had like three six foot six guys and that sounds like like not enough in high school basketball but the division in the like the county that we come from, like the tallest person is six eight. So like having three six 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 five dudes like playing on your team is like an amazing thing to happen. And we and people are still like like they just shit on the team so bad. And it's like give them a break, but they were still there every week. So I don't know. I I, I get I I appreciate the the consistency of both like terrorizing 
the teams that you support and also just showing up and being there for them. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, I re- like especially where I grew up, I know, like, every single person who is rooting for that team um, voted for Trump mm-hmm. pretty much. But it's, like, so easy <laughs> yeah. for me to imagine, like, yeah, this could just easily be communism, but uh, it's just it's just not. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I feel like we came from the same town. I think 95% of my town voted for Donald Trump. Which oh, is, I mean, same, same. Well, it's a little weird. Most here, of America. Yeah, it's, it's a little weird where I grew up because there's a lot of hippies from New York City moved out there to live in nature, but it's still like seventy yeah. percent. It just it, I call it the the Hillary Clinton effect by far because the place I co- like the county I come from has been like notoriously a blue county um, because we have the General Motors plant in our county, and so a lot of union people who support Democrats because of union stuff. And it turned red as soon as the 2016 election hit. It hadn't been red since, like, 1984. And so it was really just a a sight to see, especially when, like, a lot of the people in my town worked, like, they had parents who worked for General Motors. And I guess you can see, like, the way that a plant shutting down can really affect, like, a town and a county, but in the wrong way because the person that they voted for was not going to fix the General Motors problem. So it's kind of like they voted for Trump because they're like, hey, he's going to fix our unions, and then he ruined it. Well, well, I guess we're going to do an election segment, but how are things looking for 2020? 2020 is bleak, I won't lie. Um, I, I'm a, I'm Exc- a hope- Exclusive, exclusive from northern, northeastern <laughs> Ohio, big news. <laughs> 2020 is bleak because uh, Sherrod Brown can't be our senator forever. <laughs> like he's gonna, I think he's done. I think he said he's like... 2018 was his last go with Senate. So when 20, I don't know if it's a 2020 or 2022 when he's up for re-election again, whichever uh, one. If he's a Senate, it's 2022 if he's a Senate. Okay. Yeah, so 2022 specifically is looking bleak, but I can probably, I don't know. Actually, this is my problem because if the Midwest needs anything, the Midwest needs a candidate who appeals to the Midwest and the only person who remotely appeals to the Midwest is the cop, Pete Buttigieg. So, like, there's, like, I, I personally, like, I like Elizabeth Warren as a candidate. A lot of people don't. I, I think she's cool. And I like Bernie. Always been a Bernie supporter. But they're not appealing to the Midwest like they should be. And that's, your, that's where you got to win the election. In Ohio and Indiana and Michigan. Even, like, Iowa and Kansas. Like, they're small electoral votes. But... If you can't get those threes and those fives, it it's going to add up for the other opponent. Yeah, I, not, well, the thing I wonder about with Buttigieg is just because he, of course, he has a police shooting scandal in South Bend, and I, yep. I don't think you can win Michigan or Pennsylvania with that looming over your campaign. No. So to me, he's someone who's kind of dead on arrival almost. Yeah, and Pete Buttigieg is like the the ideal candidate for my father. Because he, like, on the outside, he's a veteran, and he's a he's a really big Christian guy. And then on the inside, he's, you know, he's a gay candidate. And I think my dad was, will see the, the Christianity and the veteran <laughs> veteranness from Indiana uh, before he sees that, and he'll vote, he'll vote for that. But problem with, I went to South Bend in August, and uh, it, is, it is quite obvious how bad South Bend is doing outside of Notre Dame. Um, because you got like most of the, the town is strictly just uh, Notre Dame, it, their, their campus. And then you go to the outskirts of South Bend and it's 
nothing but like impoverished neighborhoods with a few like really rich Christian homes that are near churches. So it's it's quite like people who aren't from South Bend who have never been from South Bend can just like imagine like oh he's doing such a great job as mayor but it's not showing because like they South Bend looks like they're doing a great job because most of their like economy is Notre Dame. So I think there needs to be some hesitancy in there and then the scandal that he had with the cop shooting and then the firing of the sheriff is weighing heavily on black voters and they do I don't think that he will win the he will gain enough like support from the black community to even have a shot in 2020. Yeah, that's that's my read on on how he's doing too. I I just I just don't see any way it can pan out. It really can't pan out because he he's too young too and I hate and I, I as a young person myself that's never something you want to say. I used to th- I used to think that but I kind of think that now like after Obama that that's kind of an asset sometimes and it seems like it's probably an asset for him cuz if he had a longer track record it'd probably just be more scandals. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. So I think this is probably his best shot. It's it's kind of like a mixed bag. It's either people are like, he's young, he's great, like he's going to bring so much like vibrancy to to office, and then there are people like, well, what has he done? He's only the mayor. He's lost like a few elections too. So it's kind of a toss up. Um, I personally like when he first like announced his candidacy. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is cool. Like this guy could really bring something, and then all this stuff kind of starts unfurling about the the scandal happening in South Bend around the sheriff and it's like, oh, maybe not. And then he says some shit in his debate answers where it's kind of like, maybe he's not ready yet. Maybe 2024 would be his year. But the the field is kind of just, it's kind of bland right now because there's just so many people. I know Beto just dropped out yesterday, which is kind of a dub for the Democrats because so many young people think Beto is the best thing since sliced bread and i just can't see it anymore yeah i don't i've never understood his appeal even when he was running in texas i did not understand it he Mm -hmm. i i honestly i get him and pete Buttigieg confused if you put a photo of them next to each other i couldn't tell you who was who (laughs) yeah well like uh as someone i personally hate ted cruz with almost every fiber of my being just like he's just his face i just want to punch it and i'm not a violent person but if i was in a room alone with ted cruz i'd probably beat the shit out of him but like i was i was really pulling for beto though to win that just just so ted cruz would lose but when he yeah, was running I mean, when he was you... running i was like he has nothing to offer yet. I, I mean it's it's a testament to how little he has to offer that you can't beat ted cruz someone literally everyone hates even even his yep. fan even his voters hate him like no one likes him <laughs> uh let me go i can okay so yesterday uh earl sweatshirt dropped a new album so i was kind of immersing oh, that, myself yeah, in that's that. kind of a yeah that's another one it's kind of like oh we know what you're listening to <laughs> yeah like uh you know i uh i appreciate earl sweatshirt so much his, his album some rap songs was one of my favorites of 2018 and i'm trying to really get into this new 15 minute album that he dropped that's like seven songs 15 minutes it's like a He's like he. I I still think he's doing the Kanye West album method better than Kanye West is doing. But I I I really do appreciate Earl Sweatshirt for the innovation he's like approaching with rap, and a lot of people aren't. I I listened to it twice yesterday because you, you can listen to it twice and still like not be done with it because it's just so quick. 
another i've listening to i don't know i've been fo- trying to focus on like newer music this month because i'd spend so much of my time listening to 1980s pop that i need to get back into newer stuff right now so i can have like a i can have that like prized opinion in december of best albums of 2019 i have well, to let me ask yeah. you this like you you did you see the the pitchfork best of the decade list came out of course i saw that and i was <laughs> i was what, angry the entire any... <laughs> time <laughs> okay so what are, what are your takes what are your takes i so i am one of the few music lovers who absolutely has never caught on to the hype behind my beautiful dark twisted fantasy i like oh, wait, I, no me too hold on wait, I, we gotta talk about this okay let's talk about that first and while we're talking about that i'm gonna pull up the list so i can like properly sing. okay I'll, I'll do some shit talking so first off okay you, know, you were saying that um earl's doing kanye better than kanye but i'm of the opinion that for a, a solid decade now people have been doing kanye better than kanye so putting oh, any, yeah for sure putting, yeah putting any of his albums even in the top 50 seems to me to be overreaching and like i, I said mm-hmm. this to my to my girlfriend like you know how does anyone even listen to any songs off my beautiful dark and twisted fantasy anymore besides Nicki minaj's verse and monster Mm-hmm. Pretty sure, pretty sure the answer is no. So, I mean, how can you have that in the top? Is my opinion, right? But I mean, what? Is, yeah, what do you think? I just so I I have been a Kanye fan since since junior high when Runaway dropped because like I've always kind of referred to Runaway the love song of my generation because it's just it's an anti love song almost and. I've always really I've I've liked that song a lot. It's probably the only song off of Dark Fantasy that I still like will listen to and be like, this is still a banger. Like I could still get down with this even yeah, seven seven what... minutes of one piano note. But Yeah, um, for sure. But Kanye Kanye's it's been a wild ride watching Kanye's career just turn to into a dumpster fire right before your eyes. It's like he, you know, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy was okay, and I actually dislike his collab with Jay-Z, because Jay-Z can do so much better. And Yeezus is a dumpster fire, with, like, two good songs. And then I actually am a fan of Life of Pablo, because I think I think you, when you catch Kanye in the middle of, a like, a phase where he's not sure which way he's leaning, if he's going towards, like, auto Yeezus, really, like, introspective yay, you get some really nice stuff. So I think Life of Pablo is a solid album. It's better than anything else he's put out this decade. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I really, I, like, he's an innovator. He's a genius. Like, you can't deny that Kanye West, one of the most, like, prolific minds of the 20th century, 21st century, actually. But he's not doing what he should be doing with that. I went into his new album, Jesus is King, and I was like, I'm going to hate this. And I did. But when I was listening to it, I'm like, wow, this album sounds so amazing, but the lyrics are just the worst things that your ears could ever hear, especially when they had like the Chick-fil-A reference on it. Is I, it, like, I haven't listened to it. Is it worse than Yeezus? Because honestly, Yeezus was an all-time low for me in terms of lyricism. Uh, you know, I think, I think I like Religious Kanye a little bit more than Yeezus Kanye, because at least, oh, like, <laughs> at least Religious Kanye is like, I still like Love My Wife. He's like doing like the Chance the Rapper thing. About, like, oh hell I yeah! My, you know, and it's like that's. Doable. I like that energy. Yeah, yeah. We like we stand like anybody who shows like a lot of love to their significant other. Like at least he's not rapping about fucking supermodels. He's obviously to some. But like, he's just it's it's like a I have nothing. I actually like like popular music that like you know from the seventies and eighties that has like religious 
undertones to it, like Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum is a great song, and like My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. But this, it's a 30 minute, like, dick suck of God and Jesus. And I just was not vibing with it because it was like, Kanye, you're one of the best lyricists of our time. And the best you can do is, like, talk about Chick fil A being closed on Sundays. Like, I couldn't vibe with it enough. So, yeah, like, if people remember early Kanye, he had some, he had some funny lyrics. He had some good smart oh, lyrics. Oh, yeah. He came up with, like, I don't know, Talib Kweli and them. So, he can, he's perfectly yeah, capable he's... of doing lyrics. He just uh, doesn't. Mm-hmm. I and plus, you know, he you know, ever since he put on the red hat, it's like he's it's been hard to really justify anything he's done in the last three years. But exactly. But as a music, like I appreciate music on on a level where I I sometimes you have to separate art from artist and and admit what's true, and it's that when it comes down to music production, Kanye is probably top five all time, just because he can. He this the way he can turn samples into just beautiful melodies and chop them up and layer them so well is is just phenomenal and that's the only thing that I will ever look forward to in a new day album is just how is he doing with music production and it's usually pretty good like he's like if you say like how was the music production on Kanye's new album it's you're more than likely going to say oh it's really good and then anything else is like that wasn't good so uh, if that was just an instrumental album that he dropped last week it'd probably be like a like an eight out of ten but since there's lyrics it's a solid two <laughs> yeah and i mean so like let's go back to the the pitchfork best of the decade list so you're you're getting of rid course. of the kanye i'm getting rid of the kanye who I mean, i'm always getting rid of kanye i mean who's like for me like who's who's going back into the the top 10 <sighs> see that's the thing because i'm always a little like apprehensive on what album i want to call the best of a decade because it's really it's one of the most subjective things you could ever like expose yourself to um i i think in at least my circle of people the consensus is usually either blind frank or it's to pimp a butterfly by kendrick and i actually disagree probably with both of those just because culturally those are both two of the most important records of my lifetime but there are there are a few other albums think from the 2010s that are just front to like beginning to end just a a way better put together album that each album each song on the album is like a a hit it's a banger each time um so an album that i think got i can't i i'm struggling to find the list because for some reason when you google search the reader poll list it just does not come up but i think it was in the top 20 at least, but Modern Vampires of the City by Vampire Weekend got some love, and it's Pitchfork always just like jerks off Vampire Weekend, f- and for good reason most of the time. And I think that's a top five album for me, for sure. Yeah, hold up. I was just looking for the list to see what Pitchfork had. We got Blonde at number one, then Kanye's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. We got Beyonce, Beyonce, mm-hmm. Kendrick to Pimp a Butterfly, and then we got Fiona Apple, Solange, uh-huh. Vampire Weekend, Robin, D'Angelo, and then Frank Ocean again. Right. I think I think I would probably too put two Frank Oceans in the top ten. I would. I would. I think Blonde is Blonde and Channel Orange are both both worthy of a top ten. Um, I don't. I I actually don't know which one's better though. That's my. That's where I uh, I stand because I was like a young like seventh grader or maybe sixth when Channel Orange came out, and I was kind of like for starting to sort of reckon with my own sexual identity. And so Channel Orange was really important. 
but then Blonde is just like the sexiest album you can put on. Like, <laughs> like I like I've definitely fucked to that album before. Like it's a it's a it's just it's a banger like, through and through. So like it's it's mostly like it's a day to day thing. Like what are you feeling on this day? And um, Blonde at number one just was probably not my not my jam. I was not thinking that was going to be the number one. I really thought they were going to just do the Kanye thing and put it at number one. And they basically did. I mean, like, the number two is pretty high out of 200. Yeah, I was going to say, too, like, when you say, like, albums that are constructed bangers back to front, like, the first album I went to with that is Robin Body Talk. Because when that, that came out, oh, oh yeah. my God, that, that, that was a great album. Song, you could just play that front to back at a party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And I also, like, I would, when I think about that, I think of um, Capacity by Big Thief. I really think that that is a, like, a, beginning to end banger and i think it was on the list but definitely could have been higher than it was but i i have been listening to big thief a lot lately because they like they put out you know two really pretty hard-hitting albums this year both completely different from one another but equally as good and i think they both got like 9.3s from pitchfork so it's gonna be weird seeing like the pitchfork best of 2019 list have like two of their top three albums from the same artist. But it's, it's yeah, just it's a, te- always, it's a testament to how good they are at this point. Yeah, it's always fun when someone, an artist, does that. Like, I was really surprised on this list that <clears throat> uh, Pitchfork didn't have Death Grips higher up. Because they, they had been huge yeah. fans of Death Grips. And frankly, you know, they have Yeezus so high up. And it's like, well, what's where'd Yeezus come from? And it's it's Death Grips. I was, really yeah. expect- I was honestly expecting one of their albums to be in the top ten. Yeah, Money Store could have easily, like popped right in there and i would have been like that's fine like I, i'm not i personally have grown out of my like death grips phase which is weird because i find myself getting angrier as i grow older but i uh death grips was like a like a 2015 thing for me where i was like you know what this is like i'm vibing with this i'm pissed off too and like i think for what it is it's it's very revolutionary in sound and i think it could have easily been number nine on this list and i would have just kept scrolling and been like yeah that makes sense well, who so who does who's doing the the good angry music for you now then? Man, I feel like like I feel like an old person trapped in a in a like a <laughs> gen, like a Generation Z body because like I don't listen to angry music anymore. But I think the most the angriest music that's going out is anything really in hip hop right now is because you know you have to be angry as a hip hop artist. You can't be like that's that's one of the problems I have with Chance the Rapper's music right now. His new album sucked, and it's because he's He's at the forefront of his, of one of the cities in America that is facing some of the most like tense social injustices and racism right now, and he's writing about how much he loves life. Which, like, I, I fuck with that for like four tracks, but like, you know, you have the prime opportunity to tackle some some really heavy shit, and you're not. So I think anything in anything in hip hop can be considered angry just based on subject matter at this point. Yeah, one of the really like shocking things, well, not shocking, but one of the interesting storylines for this is to me is like how critically Chance the Rapper's fallen off, and like I think that everyone agrees he's he's fallen off. Like no one, it's corny. It's just not. It's just not with the times mm-hmm. right now. I, uh, one of my poet friends, Jay David, they they are a huge Chance the Rapper fan, and I I like I appreciate any Chance the Rapper fan because like shout out to you, he he's a great musician through and through. Um, his tiny desk was awesome. I I still watch the tiny desk every once in a while, and I'm still often returning to acid rap in the coloring book. And 
enjoying a lot of the stuff that I'm hearing, but you can't drop a 20-song album and have, like, maybe one it. Like, you just can't. And that's the problem with, like, music right now, because Drake's dropping 20-song albums and they're trash, and then uh, me goes I don't even think anyone listens to them. Yeah, I... It's it's a it's like a it's like a streaming ploy. Like the longer your album, the better streams you get because of just the way that the algorithm is on Spotify and Apple. So like no one's listening to half the songs, but you know Drake and DJ Khaled, they're getting a lot of streams because if you listen, if you click on their album and you click on one song or two songs, they're getting like full album credit streams, which is really weird and a flawed system. But then again, you know it. It, I know a few people who are like, yeah, I want Drake to release 30 songs next time. And then I, there's people like me who is like, I'll take six. That's fine. Like a concise, I'd rather have a concise full project than a really like dense project that is filler tracks mostly. Yeah. And you see like some more concise projects by like, I think the rappers we both like coming out, like, you know, Earl mm-hmm. Sweatshirt's done it. Um, JPEG Mafia does it. And so, I yeah. know, I, those are, those are the albums I like too. The tend to be the more concise ones right now. Mm-hmm. And, and and then again you know it's that's just that's the power of kanye at this point because i don't think he's he invented short albums by by like no means because eps have been around for decades but you know it he kind of got started you know in 2018 when he was dropping like he dropped an album every week that he was like he produced and they were all like seven songs and like almost all of those albums except for the nas album was like were pretty solid like the push a t album was one of my favorites last year just because of from it, there were no filler tracks and i think that a lot of artists are shoot are striving to have albums that don't have any filler or maybe like one or two filler and that's fine like i, I like filler tracks are cool but when you have like 10 filler tracks it's uh 10 too many at that point yeah, and something you something else I've been meaning to ask you to to <laughs> to change the topic for a minute is about like the the poetry scene in northeastern Ohio and all that. Like mm-hmm. so, you know, because it seems like you know there's barn house up there. I know Brendan's up. Brendan oh, yeah. is up there. Like so, how yeah? How has that been going? <laughs> I uh, I'm usually pretty. I love the poetry scene in northeast Ohio and mostly Ohio in general. I'm not really sure what's happening in Cincinnati. I've I've been to Cincinnati like three times in my life. But um Cleveland oh, same. Cleveland is doing great. Like Cleveland and Columbus is doing amazing. Like Columbus has has everything, you know. But Cleveland has always kind of been like an underdog and the lit scene is is getting much better. I mean, you have Gordon Square Review and you have Barnhouse and and then there's a couple smaller journals like I think uh Long, long, long journal is out of Cleveland, though you don't hear much about them these days. I don't know what they're up to, but and then there's like uh, there's Jenny Journal that's out of Youngstown State, and um, Akron's got their own press. CSU has their own press, so like there's a lot of like opportunities in Northeast Ohio. I think I've been. I don't know if it's because I'm from Northeast Ohio, if it's the truth, but I, I've seen a lot more Ohio poets being published these days. Like I think. Like Ohio is at the forefront of poetry right now, and I don't know if that's because of the fact that so many great poets have come from Ohio that are really popular, or it's just really a testament to how hard of work Ohio poets are doing right now. Like, like Kevin Latimer and Jason Harris with Barnhouse, they they have created a brand new, like, fantastic journal from the ground up, um, and they're on their you know their third issue at this point, and 
it just keeps getting better. And then they have like the the reading series that they do like almost every month, season two right now, where they you know they bring out like pretty well known poets. Like they just had Ruth Awad last spring, I believe, and I think Heather Crystal was doing it too. And it just it's it's really if not a testament to the hard work, it's just it's opening so many new avenues for young writers in the in Cleveland specifically. Like so many young people are coming out to these events and supporting unlike I've ever seen. And it hasn't yet there has not been a, a like a bridge between Youngstown and Cleveland yet. Like Cle- Youngstown's got its own pretty cool environment with literature and Cleveland is thriving. But it's everywhere in between those like so where I'm from, which is Warren and Warren, Ohio, and then Kent is kind of still not into it yet. They have some open mics every once in a while. So you have those, and then you have like Bainbridge and Twinsburg, all those places in between that it hasn't really gotten to. And it's still, it's still a very uh, heavily suppressed um, form of learning, and art is still not really accepted as well as it is in the big cities. So I'm looking forward to seeing if it'll start like expanding and blanketing the rust belt a little bit more than it already has yeah i feel like it's there's really been a, a growing scene there you know for a, mm-hmm. for a number of years like i don't know like two dollar radios out of columbus i want to say and oh yeah yeah and like um in terms of like leftist politics i know street fight has been in columbus for like a decade now doing their thing and yeah. it just yeah and it just really feels like a, a growing and huge scene over there but i also just wanted to ask you too like you know you mentioned you got into to poetry through like Hanif and I was just wondering like who'd you go to like after that like how'd you like what continued I guess the snowball effect for you hmm that's a good question well this is so lame but like uh who I went through the people that like Hanif was hanging out with so like Denez Smith and um e-viewing and all those like folks that are kind of in his sphere of people like Nate Marshall and uh William James and Sam Sachs, like all those people are kind of like, they're that group of people of those poets of that age range that have kind of like consolidated their like talents together. And they've created this epicenter of like fantastic poetry that just keeps coming out and coming out. And um, it started there. They kind of dominated the poetry scene from like 2015 to 2018, but now it's kind of shifting a little bit to newer poets in 2019 so like noah baldino is one of my favorites they're doing some amazing stuff um and then you have i can't even think i always revert back to kevin jason because even though they aren't nationally known poets like sam Sachs and like hanifa durkee they are like celebrities in northeast ohio when it comes to poetry and so like somewhere along the line my like segue from Hanif has led me to this group of people in Cleveland who are putting out a lot of fantastic work on the reg and it's been fun it really has been and to be a part of that group now has is eye-opening because when you get like involved on which is also I would say poetry twitter part of the reason how I've gotten into so many other poets once you get to be a part of poetry twitter it really is like something you can't leave you're like in, like immersed in it forever so i mean it's more than anything it's just whatever i come across on my timeline if i don't know the poet i surely do after i read some of their work 
that comes across on the feed. Yeah, I mean that's been that's been my experience too, and it's really like for me, um, <laughs> not trying to back like, oh, I'm so old and wise, but you know, I'm so like I'm, I think I'm like I remember back in like 2011, 2012, and it's just weird. It's kind of weird to me to see like that was like my experience back then, and it's weird to see people having that experience now, several years later, mm-hmm. like to see that to see that that kind of like some of the poets you know doing it have changed, like you said, you know, going from Hanif and Denez to you know the barnhouse scene in in cleveland i don't know it's just it's really interesting to watch all those sort of cycles go by right it really it is super cool though to watch because um those like those folks like sam and denez and hanif they have they have really revolutionized the canon i was just talking to my friend adrian novi about this about how the canon has been so changed in the last five years that now all the poets doing work now are, you can see the influence in all of us from those people. And I think it's like super fucking cool to like, just say like, no one is influenced by Walt Whitman anymore. Thank God. Like no one is like trying to model their work after Allen Ginsberg, like they used to in like the nineties and the early aughts. So like seeing people who are modeling their work after like Franny Choi is like super chill. And like, seeing someone who writes a poem about football after reading one of Julian Randall's poems about football. It's like the coolest fucking thing. And I'm like, so, so it's like such a privilege to just even like be a, like a viewer to what's happening and the evolution that's going on in poetry. Yeah. It feels like over the past 10 years, things have like really accelerated in terms of poetry and what people are reading. You know, I remember mm-hmm. <laughs> to be like, like the, the feel like, I feel like I've seen, feel like I'm having a flashback, but um, like remembering, you know, what things were like 10 years ago was it's just, it's just so different. So much has changed, you know, and, it, and it's also yeah. gotten a lot more international too, which I think has been a really cool part of the, the scene. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, like Japanese poetry is phenomenal and it's still like being, it's still happening. Like there are still so many like Asian poets who are crossing into the mainstream and it's getting to America and it's just phenomenal. And then the UK has a lot of good poets too, but, and I think, Oh yeah. Nigeria, Nigeria is one of like the most like out there poet, like poetry places right now. Like they have so many, like Logan February, I believe is from Nigeria or at least another country in Africa. And they're doing like some of my favorite work right now. And then there's a couple of other like poets whose names I can't remember off the top of my head right now. But they are from Nigeria, and they're getting published in these gigantic journals, and it's just, it's, like, so cool to watch. Like, poetry is a global thing now, and it always kind of has been global, but never, like, as connected as it has been. Yeah, what, yeah it's, what's really wild, too, is, like, watching all these connections form over the years and seeing all these sort of styles come together in really, like, like you know, really cool ways. And, like, I, I want to say, like, you know, your, your poetry, like, you wrote a poem about Fife Dog, and, you know, I can see the influence of, you know like a half a dozen poets we just talked about on something like that. Mm-hmm. Like in a way that that sort of thing just didn't feel possible 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and the, and the thing that I like about it is, is, is that all of us were taking this influence from these other poets and we're writing our own narratives and we're making it our own, but you can still see like that influence in there, which is really nice because you could read like, you could read it like a Ginsburg poem or even a, Kerouac poem or a Ferlinghetti piece and you can see a little bit of like the Frost stuff going on or the Robert Lowell and 
I like that you can still see people's influences and in their works, but you can still differentiate whether their work is their own. And I think that 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 the fact that that has stayed consistent for a century is has been really wild to watch because you would think that it would get to the point where we would either like not see anyone's influence or not be able to whose is whose. Yeah, and it kind of feels like there was like a break in the in the '60s with a lot of poetry, but it it didn't necessarily get incorporated back into like the mainstream canon immediately. And I see, mm-hmm. I think I kind of see that happening now with a lot of what's going on. And that's been really interesting to watch. But I also want to ask you too, like, what are you, I guess, like excited about in the coming years in the poetry world? I'm excited about the, about the people my age who are becoming poets, because it's hard to be a 20 year old and sort of break through into the like sort of mainstream of poetry. I mean, it's like a, it's a privileged thing if it happens, but not a lot of people my age are getting published as much as people who are like 27 or 28 and have MFAs. But I'm looking forward to the possibility of many more poets who are not, who do not go to graduate school for poetry and are still making an important difference in the poetry community because I think it's starting a little bit where people are showing like, hey, you don't need an MFA or a PhD to be a great poet. And I'm excited to see how that specifically evolves yeah that's something i'm really interested in seeing too it feels like a lot of the poetry scene for the past few years even though like i like we're both saying i think a lot of new influences have been coming along but it does still feel very mfa driven oh yeah and there's kind of like a stigma about mfas like if you don't get an mfa you're not in the poetry community there are still some like corners of the whole like experience where they're like you need an mfa or else it doesn't matter I think that's like a poetry foundation thing, and I'm hoping, like I, uh, like I, I, almost everybody that I see get published by Poetry Foundation is an MFA or a PhD or at least someone who knows is like a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy sort of deal. Very like it's like a pyramid scheme at this point. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But I guess like, do you feel pressure to get an MFA because of that? I feel pressure to get an MFA in something. Maybe not poetry. but more and more than ever, because like I don't want to be a poet like for my career. That's not my thing. I want to be a journalist, and so I see a lot of like writers for places like The Ringer or SB Nation, which is some place that I would like to work for that don't have MFAs. They just have bachelor's degrees. So I have a lot more faith in in my capabilities, and I feel more validated because a lot of companies and a lot of news outlets are starting to branch out and say, "Hey, you don't need an MFA in." For us, just show us that you can write well, and that's that's really like important to me. But I think for some reason the poetry community has not caught on yet to that. Where like there are so many good poets who haven't even finished college that are just as good as people who have PhDs. So it's just it's more of less of stop looking at the cover letter and start looking at the document like submission file. Yeah, totally. And like so, like what. I guess what sports writers and like people, people from like the Ring or SB Nation are you looking at? Like who, what, I, who's I, writing that you like there? I'm a huge fan of like Rob Harvilla. He's he's from Columbus and he writes for the Ringer and he does some really amazing stuff. And I'm also I just I I follow the Ringer like on the daily. I like like John Boyce is number one, obviously, but Bill Simmons is is outdated as Bill Simmons can be. Sometimes he's he's on the money like sometimes he just does shit that's fucking amazing and i'm like yeah you get it 
still somehow you're like 50 years old but chris ryan he's really cool my favorite i think my favorite is chaser he's he's like the best person on earth like he he's coming out with these books that i'm like damn i wish i wrote these books um but yeah the the fun thing about sports writing especially with like websites like the ringer and sb nation is that the people whose stuff you're reading and loving you might not actually remember their name because like they're just they're staff writers at this point and i kind of like that anonymity because people are writing such good stuff on the regular that you don't actually have to like know who they are at this point you can if you want like if you're like oh it's this guy i'm waiting for his next thing to drop but the writing output from everybody has just gotten so like consistently good on both outlets that i don't really care who i'm reading at this point i just want to read good shit about the ohio state buckeyes and feel like i'm not reading a 70 year old man who has been like the ohio state beat writer for 40 years yeah totally yeah totally and i was gonna say too like it feels like um like places like the ringer or whatever kind of get the new sort of pop culture sports zeitgeist that's going on in a way that Mm -hmm. a lot of other publications don't get right like there's a there's a thing going on in on the cleveland browns twitter right now where the fans are kind of, like the younger fans um, that aren't boomers are kind of like we're kind of we're just tired of like six year old dudes covering the Browns and having really terrible takes. Like, can we get some young guys in here? I'm sure there are tons of young guys who can do this better. And so it's like those outlets are not like getting with the times at all. They're sticking with the same people. The Cleveland Plain Dealer has had the same Browns beat writer I think for 15 years in the. And uh, Paul Hoynes is a, the Cleveland Indians beat writer for the Plain Dealer, and he's been there since, like, I think the Plain Dealer started in 19-whatever, 20. I don't know. He's old. But, like, I, I, that's the thing I appreciate about, appreciate about places like The Ringer because they're bringing in young guys and they're writing really, really hard-hitting stuff. And, like, that's awesome. Yeah, and that reminds like, how this podcast started was um, the sort of going through the old CPSA communist party um newspaper the new masses and like something that that gets talked about sometimes on leftist sports twitter is the way you know like there's a book about um i think it's called sports box red or something about um one of the communist baseball columnists from the 30s into like the 50s and you know mm-hmm. they they had if you read that stuff back like there's a way in which they understood how sports fed into popular culture and it feels like for a long time that was kind of ignored to get sports out of politics or whatever, or yeah. politics out of sports. But it feels like a lot of this stuff is coming back around, and um, th- that understanding of politics and pop culture uh, has really returned. And it's—I don't know—it's it's fascinating to watch that in like places like The Ringer, or in some mm-hmm. you know some of these sort of newer podcasty type venues. Yeah, and. I mean, it's about time that people kind of accepted that, you know, you can't have popular culture without politics because pop, like, politics are popular culture at this point because we're so, like, we're so ingrained in, like, media at this point that what isn't pop culture? So whenever someone's, like, keep politics out of my sports, like, broadcast, like, keep them in. Like, I want to see it. I don't care which side it's on. I want to see, like, people not getting censored at this point. I think that... That's why I think LeBron James is the coolest person on earth. Not just because he's from like Ohio, but it's the fact that he's got a voice and he's using it. And he's still getting shit on by like boomers at this point, but I think a lot of people are coming around. Like he built a school. Like <laughs> how many athletes could like do that? 
like he's like it's nice to see like a lot of people starting to accept that politics belong in popular culture because politics are popular culture and they have to go hand in hand with these things yeah totally i guess like it's cool like one of the cool that's like one of the things that strikes me about your poems is how like i guess second nature that that comes in your poems the way all these things are intertwined and can't be divorced from each other well yeah like i i think that like i said earlier um i I only know how to write things in relation to the th- to what else is happening right next to me. So it's, you know, like a, I had a poem come out yesterday in Homology Lit, and I mentioned on Twitter that I was listening to It Was a Good Day by Ice Cube while I was writing it. And I don't think I would have written that poem if I wasn't listening to the song. Like, I think that the things that come out, like, that are a part of our everyday lives aren't written about enough. Like, I'm tired. Like, I, I appreciate, like, poems about, like, bad parents because like everybody has like problems with their families and their parents that are like good things to write about because it's a good sort of like release of the trauma and the the way that the trauma has been built up inside of a person it's a good uh form of release it's very therapeutic but you can only write about it so many times before it becomes the same thing every time but i mean more poems about like go like listening to frank ocean's new single and going on afterwards like more more shit about that like i want to hear about how you know like the new angel olsen album made you call your mom because you missed her so much like i think that i think that there's sort of been a disconnect in a lot of aspects of poetry and that's something i've noticed because i go to a school that has a creative writing major and i'm the only person in the major who has a poetry concentration and everyone else who attempts to write poetry like doesn't use popular culture they want to write about roadkill or the stars or something like that something that's been written about a thousand times but i'm like you know i kind of want to write about that um that appearance that warren zevon had on letterman like the year before he died like that's really interesting let's talk about that in relation to like a long distance relationship i have with my partner like i think that there it's it's kind of naive to not think that you can mend the fences between popular culture in your personal life yeah and what's interesting too is um i think a lot of the time like with the twitter stuff or pop culture like i said it it feels like something that just kind of happens to us but a lot of the time like when i'm reading your poems it feels like um you actually are just like you're trying to like make it do something for you Mm -hmm. in a way that i think you know a lot of the times i think poets don't do that because it they feel they have no power or control over pop culture, but it it feels like maybe you, you think differently about that. Yeah, I think like the the best example I can think of off the top of my head is um a poem I wrote about the new Tyler the Creator album, which probably my favorite of twenty nineteen at this point. It, it's it was just phenomenal. But I remember I, I wrote about a certain moment, like just recently in May, where I went to the hot dog shop which is like this really famous restaurant in warren ohio and it's been there since the 50s and it was the day after igor came out and there's there's a lot of relation to to a lot of people igor is just another tyler creator sounds good to you know people who like who's have a sexual identity that lines up sort of with the the things that tyler creator is writing about at this point and seemingly the the way that he's kind of evolved into going from like this hip-hop artist who has blatantly homophobic lyrics to someone who is more than likely actually in the lgbtqia 
community is is really fascinating and i want to take that part of his record and parlay it into what i'm going through and sometimes the timeline of how these things happen just they line up perfectly like i didn't really think about it until i started writing that igor came out the day before i had this you know moment where i was thinking about you know like i'm sitting here at this restaurant with my friends and they know about who i am like how i identify but we don't talk about it you know and like we don't have to talk about it because that's it doesn't make up what it is like what our friendship is about and so i think that there are a lot of ways to interact with these things that you love without forcing it you know you don't have to say i went to this restaurant in july and you know i want to connect it to this album that came out in may and i'm definitely gonna like hold your hand the entire way through it like and like popular culture happens every day there could have been something that happened yesterday that really vibes with what i'm going through yeah and one of the like and one of the like well, you you mentioned you kind of brought it up, but like one of the interesting things, like one of the most interesting storylines for like the the 2010s decade for me musically is seeing like all the ways the odd future like rap- rappers and that whole scene kind of morphed into what they are today. Like watching you know the internet and Frank Ocean and Earl and Tyler kind of change politically and change in terms of their outlook has been I don't know like watching them sort of grow musically and all that has just been i don't know probably the my favorite thing of the decade musically i you know i highly agree with that um odd future i like i remember when they were when like oldie came out and it was like that 10 minute long like just free verse where everyone was just like freestyle oh yeah that, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's <laughs> a legendary one like and it has that legendary frank in line where he's like i'm high and i'm waiting I mean, straight, and I'm just like, I feel, I fuck with that, hell yeah, and like, and it has the gif of him sipping his drink. Ugh. Yeah, so legendary. Legend, like, but like, yeah, Odd Future, they have gone through probably the greatest glow up in hip hop history. I think, like, they went from being like the the music group that 13 year old boys listen to and like base their entire lifestyles off of to like putting out these really introspective albums about themselves. And so now all the people who are 13 years old, like dropping the F word at like, at like the dorky kids in school are like, now they're forced to kind of reckon with how they were acting like 10 years ago, which is really like the best one, like 360 you can ever take because it's forcing like assholes to really kind of reconcile with their own, like, assholeness and then it's like it's also a nice um sort of escape for like queer kids who kind of always knew but you know really enjoyed it and and kind of like took the way that Tyler the creator like would say the word faggot in his songs and kind of just threw it to the side so it's been fun watching it from like both my own perspective and my friend's perspectives. Cause me, like as someone who's a queer person, like it's been nice seeing Tyler, the creator write song for me and for others and Tyler, Cre- not Tyler, Cre- Frank Ocean has been doing it since 2012. So like, it's fine, but it's been really interesting watching, you know, my straight friends sort of interact with this music now. Yeah. And that's like, to me, one of the interesting things about it is watching, mm-mm. Like in a lot of ways, they kind of are a forerunner to a lot of like the SoundCloud type rap stuff you see now. And I don't know, it, it gives that like watching their trajectory kind of 
gives me hope in some weird ways for some of that stuff, despite how awful it is at, on the on the surface of it. I'm not like trying to excuse that or anything. It's just seems like maybe that's a trajectory more artists, some artists are going to end up taking. Mm-hmm. I certainly, I certainly hope so, but uh, I don't know. It's really nice to watch, like like an, like I think that's why Tyler Creator is probably one of the the most polarizing figures still in hip hop because. It's it's nice watching someone reckon with their own like attitude and like the way that they acted without being forced to. Like no one was telling Tyler the Creator like, "Hey, you gotta stop saying like faggot." Like you gotta stop that. Like <laughs> it's not a good look. It's 2016. He did it on his own. Like and he was never gonna let anyone tell him not to. And it took yeah. him, it took him four albums to do it. So yeah, it was it was clear that it wasn't all the critics and all the people like shouting at him from you know whatever op ed piece it was. It was something uh-huh. that, that came from him and his own reckoning, which I don't know. That was like, like I said, that was really, really cool to see. Yeah, it's like it's it's one of the like the pleasures of like watching popular music evolve before your eyes, which is how it's always been. Is you get to see the way that people just evolve through their own their own ways, which is kind of like the on the flip side with like cancel culture, watching people be forced to reckon, it just doesn't feel the same. It hits different. You don't like, you can't listen to an artist who is a sexual abuser anymore because they were like forced to, you know, like do it, everything on other people's terms. And like, I can't, I can't listen to people who were like sexual assaulters just out of principle because they're just like terrible people, but watching them take a break and then come back and say, Hey, I've really thought about this and it feels all very fake and so it's nice to see people like tyler do their own thing yeah and i was gonna say two things about that one like one of the things with tyler that's always been cool too is he's he's still like that zany teenager i remember from i don't know what was the first video he did like french or something i don't know one of those one of those early ones i cannot remember yeah or Yonkers, like it's still he's still that zany mm-hmm. kind of he's still kind of that zany kind of person, but you know you still see him doing the the re- the funny react faces at all the award shows, but yeah, but like you know what's really wild to me too is someone who like watched this kind of watches kind of scene for for a while is like I remember like all the like say like Das Racist and some of those woker groups like MIA, they've mm-hmm. all ended up they've all ended up canceled, and here we still have Odd Future, which is the I don't know, which is one of the weirder trajectories, I think, of the decade. It, yeah, it is, especially because you have people in Odd Future like Earl Sweatshirt who really haven't like changed as an artist at all, but they like they're still relevant and it's and not a lot of rap groups can do that. Not a lot of rap groups can can be a, a one concise like machine and then go their separate ways and still be as powerful. Like I always find myself returning to like Odd Future's mixtape because it's it's nice to listen to them all separately, but when you go back and hear them all on the same track, like just absolutely destroying it, it's it's still nice. And you and now you hear about who these people really are, and you can go back and listen to it. I think with sometimes you can listen to it with an easier mind, and then sometimes you hear like those lyrics and you, and you cringe a little bit. And you're like, I'm glad he doesn't do that anymore. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about like? Because I feel like um, Brockhampton was a group that kind of tried to take that style like tried to just kind of force that kind same kind of model how do you feel about some like a group like them i uh i like brockhampton i think their last two albums have been ridiculously underwhelming and i hate to like maybe apply that to the fact that amir van is out of the group because of like the shitty things he did but 
but you listen to the saturation trilogy when amir was on it and you're like yeah this this shit was good and then they brought out um iridescence and it just it it wasn't the same i don't think it's because amir was a huge factor lyrically i just think his presence in the group made them produce music differently and i mean like kevin abstract is he's he's the man like he's awesome but like but it it's it just shows that even having Kevin Abstract in your group does not mean like toss out the most banging records of the century. Like I mean, Ginger, it's okay. Like a lot of their stuff is good. I think th- I, I think they're unsure of where they're supposed to go now. And then there's like a rumor that they're breaking up like soon. So I I have no idea where they're as a group. But I mean, I can still sit down and listen to like like Tanya from Iridescence and be like, this is still like a really good song. But I mean, I think. I think it's it's nice that a lot of times to watch a group be unsure of who they are as a collective, but it can also be really frustrating because they're like you can see how they can do songs so much better and they don't because there's just so many like working parts in the machine and they're just they're not all working properly. Yeah, and that's really one of the things that's always been wild about Odd Future is just like they've always known who they were and they've always just been so deep with so much talent. It, I don't know, it's. You just, you just kind of wonder how some of that stuff ends up happening like that. I guess it kind of do you yeah. feel like that with like the sort of Cleveland scene. Like it feels like um, it's got a like the the deep kind of group of talent like that. I think the Cleveland scene is really interesting because you you get exposed to the if you don't live in Cleveland. It's my my deal. I live forty five minutes from Cleveland, but I live close enough I can go whenever. But I don't go enough that I just go to Mahal's or the Grog Shop to see like local acts play their own full sets you i usually get exposed to the cleveland scene through them being openers for bigger acts and they've got a lot of potential i think in cleveland i think cleveland's music scene is budding at best right now and i i think columbus's music scene is probably doing a lot better um but there are some bands in cleveland like runaway brother and then there's an artist you know nick adkins who they've got a, a local following but they really have sort of failed to branch out and i think i call it the the 21 pilots effect because once you get like a big band from your city that breaks out it's hard for like the smaller acts to follow suit so like there hasn't been like a columbus artist breakout since 21 pilots and i don't think there will be a while and then in cleveland i mean cleveland I, like who's the last artist that really broke out from cleveland i guess it would be kid cuddy and no one has really been been out there doing it yet i don't know i don't I, it's just budding i think they have a lot of, like possibilities but they're they're not hitting it right now but i have hope for them yeah because it used to be a big scene during like the emo days oh yeah cleveland was huge in like the mid 2000s they were doing it and and it was pretty cool like it was pretty it's it's always like cool when you see like a like even in like the 70s and the 80s cleveland was a huge like not it wasn't necessarily like like you have the pretenders and like devo is from akron but like it was it was a not a place that was breeding a lot of fantastic acts, but it was for some reason a place that great acts would just always flock to. Like they would come and always make sure they played here on their tour. And I think that is still kind of, kind of true for a lot of acts. Although there are acts like Weissblood and Angel Olsen and Tyler Creator who never come to Cleveland. They're never closest they come is maybe Columbus if you get, if if they feel like it. But it's usually Detroit or Pittsburgh, and yeah, and that's like that's fine. That's like a four-hour drive to Detroit, or like a one and a half drive to Pittsburgh. But it's still you don't go to Pittsburgh. I do go to Pittsburgh more than I. I have <laughs> actually, yeah, I've never gone to Detroit for 
separate. Like, you know, like, like, um, like Lucy Dacus was just in Detroit, like last year, and I had missed her Columbus show. And I was like, well, I could just go to Detroit. And I'm like, ah, she's young. She'll probably come to Columbus quite soon. So it's, I, I just went to Pittsburgh for the Whitney show in, uh, September, and it was really, it was a lovely show. But I'm having a lot of trouble going to days. It just, I don't know. It takes it takes all of it out of you to just go stand for three hours, and sometimes the crowds are kind of just not cool. Like they're not they're not good at all. Yeah. So I guess like, um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, what is we never really discussed? What is your fit? Your number one album of the decade? We oh yeah, to we got it. Yeah, we got. Well, this is a good thing to close on. What? So what are you? Yeah. What are your so what are your top like few albums? Top few albums. Well, I think my number one album of the decade, um, Thank You for Your Service by A Tribe Called Quest. I think that's the best album that has come out ever. I think anything from twenty sixteen could be number one. Like I was just thinking about that like last week, about how there were just so many consistent banger albums that came out in twenty sixteen that it's probably one of the top five greatest years of music ever. So I but I would say that the Tribe Called Quest is number one for me and then i mean the next two on the list could be anything i really i mean i would put i would put a frank ocean album up there but i couldn't tell you which one would be today probably on my mood be blonde. it's kind of like rainy out right now so blonde is like is like a rainy day album um but see there's a lot of good albums that have come out this year like i'm pretty teens of denial by car seat headrest is one of the best albums of the decade sure and then stuff but actually i'll take that back so the best the third best album is probably historian by lucy dacus i find myself like coming back to that album quite often and i'm like this is just hits from one from track one to track 10 so those would be my three right now and then maybe burn your fire for no witness by angel olsen that's a really good album help like and then like you got like helplessness blues by flea foxes which is like like that hipster album where people are like, "Oh, you like Fleet Foxes? You're like the worst." And I'm like, "But they're like cool. Like they got like some good. They got like a couple good albums. That are good. I don't know. But what, what's your number one? It's probably going to be a Frank Ocean album. Um, That's fair. Yeah, it's probably going to be one of those. I'd probably put a JPEG Mafia or um, Death Grips up there. Probably the Fiona Apple up there. I've always been a huge fan of Beach House, so that's probably up there. Um, same with Beyonce, probably the self-titled one. I, you know, that yeah, that that and that's an album for me. Like I remember exactly where I was when that album dropped, and it's yeah, that was a absolutely huge moment. <laughs> you know, I'm actually uh, I'm one of those Beyonce fans where I so I'm like four four was it four was like her best, but I I really do like her self-titled album, and I think Lemonade is a really good uh, album as well. And I actually liked her live album she put out. Yeah, I think Beyonce. Beyonce is just really consistent. She has been, yeah. But she's, I have like, what were you gonna say? Yeah, I was gonna say she's. Is she probably is she is she the artist of the decade? That's a good question. I feel like it, My, I, I feel like it's a yes for me. But what do you what are your thoughts? She's top three for sure. I think in terms of just consistent consistency, she put out three really really like hard hitting albums this decade is is really important. But like another person who put out three really hard hitting at like albums is Kendrick Lamar, so he would be in good discussion too. Just because you know that string of 
where he put out Good Kid, Mad City, and then To Pimp a Butterfly, and then I I skip over Untitled and Master because demos, but then damn, so like that's a really good string of three. So I think it's between those two. And then if you want to put like a if you want to try a little diverse in genre, there's a like a, a rock band that I would say has been really consistent is the War on Drugs. I think they've put out some really good stuff too. Yeah, they have. I've always liked the their shoegazy feels. Yeah, they just like sometimes I just like lay in my dark. And, like they could really uplift your spirits quickly. Yeah, see, for me, like I agree. Like I would probably put a band like that in there, but it'd probably be Beach House. Oh, I love Beach House. I thought that Seven was really good. Um, I'm and actually the- like a and de- <laughs> Depression Cherry is probably my favorite Beach House. Although I like their really early stuff too. Like their um, like their self titled album is really good. Yeah, they've had an incredible like f- almost 15 year run. And they somehow just don't get the credit that they deserve for that run too. Like I know, like like they've been consistently one of like the best, like most critically acclaimed bands in in America and in the world. And they and fuck is Beach House. I'm like you're lost. Yeah. Meanwhile, like yeah, I I don't I don't get it because you know Victoria's got an incredible voice and their sound is just oh yeah her voice yeah her voice especially on those early albums oh my god. I uh I was I I find I always like to tell the story about um, how I like came into Beach House's music and it's because I saw I found their music it was PPP and it was the backing track of a vine where a guy like ascends to heaven and sees Harambe at at like God's gates and I was like what is this song oh my and that god that was it it's it's you know and like that song has kind of stuck with me it's so lovely like Depression Cherry is a fantastic I would put Depression Cherry in my top five albums. Decade, yeah, and probably. everyone, everyone, I think feels like they fell off with that album. Like, who's mm, like a critic or something? But I, I personally mm-hmm. think they, because like from Teen Dream and um, what was them before that? Anyway, <laughs> I, they have a their album. Thank Your Lucky Stars is uh, is one of my favorites too. I think it's like their least talked about album. But yeah, because they released it right after um, Depression yeah. Cherry. Yeah, yeah, they released really with hits. two albums in one year. Yeah, and like I think the best bands can do that and people are like, yeah, these are both great. But then they're like some some bands just they can't do it. It was that's, that's right. fine. It was, yeah, I was going to say I remembered it's well, I looked it up. It's Teen Dream then Bloom. And then I feel like people think right. they dropped off with Depression Cherry because those two albums are so fantastic. Bloom but, is really good. But no, yeah. the, they're haters. The Depression Cherry was just as good. They are. Yeah, for sure. I mean, do you want to talk about the NBA season because it just started? I don't. I'm not. I don't watch the NBA that much, to be honest. I think okay. like I need a winter sport, and so that's in contention, and soccer's in contention for me. Because football's not really a winter sport, even though it's it's like a fall sport because it ends basically if depending on who you root for, it ends in December. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I'm probably like I've always been a huge LeBron fan. I remember. Mm-hmm. I remember when he was drafted. That was a huge. That, that was yeah. That was a huge moment. It was and uh, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, and I remember, like, uh, you know, I remember all the various dramas of his career, going to Miami and all that. I, you know, I followed his career very closely, so I'm certainly, I'm certainly rooting for him, especially now that I live in Los Angeles. But um, mm-hmm. I don't know; I still don't follow the NBA that closely. What are your What are your NBA uh, predictions? My uh, before I get to predictions, I will say that I, I took a break from the NBA um, for a little while in high school because it had just gotten into kind of like conglomerate where it was super. T- and like you if you weren't on the super team you were not going to win so as a 
and this was like right after LeBron went to the Heat. So it was kind of this idea that like, oh, well, the Cavs, you know, suck. So like we have Kyrie Irving now, suck still. So I'm going to stop watching. And then LeBron came back. And it's kind of like the total like dickhead like bandwagon situation. But like I've always been a Cavs fan. So it's, you know, LeBron. No, the, the, the LeBron wins. coming back storyline was he's like probably my favorite. Yeah, I'm not even a huge basketball fan. That's probably my favorite sports story of the decade. Oh yeah, it, it and it was, and I, I just I, like I remember just like specifically that it wasn't talked about enough before it happened. Like it was just kind of like rumored, like oh yeah, what if LeBron like came back to free agency and then one day like he drops like a Sports Illustrated like op ed and he's like I'm coming back and we're like fuck what okay well you got we got to win a title now and but I'm I like I'm starting to wreck like reconcile with the nba and because they really are trying to harbor like a really nice environment players and they're letting their players like come out in pink cleats and their uniforms are like black like they they like the nfl will find you if you wear a watch during a game but the nba is like do whatever you want and so like i i'm appreciating the way that they're letting players be who they are and like they let lebron you know wear a t-shirt that says i can't breathe on the front after eric Gar- killed by cops and they did not like find him or anything but if that was happening in the nfl you know people like there would be an uprising so i i'm getting back into basketball professional basketball specifically just because they're the culture is just so much better than like baseball and football culture right now but like for predictions i have no predictions yet because this season is weird there's so many people that are hurt it's just been really fun watching the war get the shit kicked out of them at the beginning of the yep. season so far. Like, they lost by 20 to... And that's how you know it's terrible for them, right? And Curry's out. He broke, like, two days ago. So that's... As much as I like Steph Curry, because he was born in Ohio, and he really is a good basketball player. Like, a lot, like when he when the Cavs and the Warriors were facing each other, like, man, I fucking hate Steph Curry. But now that, like... Now that that's all passed, like, I'm, I have learned to accept that Steph Curry is probably one of the best basketball players of my lifetime and that's i mean it's been pretty fun ever since then but it is kind of fun to watch him get the shit kicked out of him like right now oh yeah no i agree it's a, it is cathartic uh-huh. but... it's a long overdue comeuppance for the golden state warriors yeah um i just want to say too um you know <laughs> thank you so much for talking of course and we'll have we didn't even talk about your chapbook maybe we'll have to do another episode about that I will say about the chapbook, um, read it if you'd like. I'm, I'm kind of at this point with the chapbook where I like don't even like reading it because I don't think it properly like reflects the work I'm doing right now. I think I was kind of like a like an immature time in my poetry like career when I wrote it, kind of leaning too heavily on influences when I was writing it. So we can do a we could do another episode about the chapbook, but. Perhaps there's a like another chap, a different chapbook or a full length coming out in the future that we can. Oh, well, that sounds cool. Well, yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you so much for talking. Yeah, of course. No, thank you for having me on. It took us like two months to get here, but yeah, we but did it's it. great. We did it.